grace, peace, and a place. Grace, peace, and a place. That's the outline for Ephesians chapter 2. First ten verses are all about grace. 11 through 18 is peace. And then 19 to the end of the chapter is a place. This is, I think, perhaps one of the most important chapters in all of the letters of Paul, if not in all of the New Testament, if not in all of Scripture. In every single one of the 13 traditionally certain letters of Paul, and that's leaving out Hebrews because that's the jury's out. I still think it's Paul, but we'll talk about that another time. In every single one of the 13 other letters, Paul opens with the same two words that I believe completely encompass a life in Christ. Grace and peace. He says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So tonight we will begin with grace. We will end with peace and a place. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. That sentence alone is perhaps the most bold, brazen, and boastless statement Paul ever had made or would ever make. The most amazing thing he would ever broadcast to the world. I want to read it again. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 9, verse 23, had said, Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. And we've talked about that's the boast of culture. Intellectualism, wisdom, might, that is physical strength, or riches. Those are the three big boasts of just about any culture. God says, don't waste your time on that. Let him who boasts, boast of this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises, and then he uses this Hebrew word, chesed. Grace. I am the Lord who exercises grace and justice and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. If you're going to boast, boast that you know me. At least have a boast with some substance to it. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul said, May it never be that I would ever boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And yet in this heavenly pinnacle of the prison epistles of Paul, he goes beyond even that to say that the grace of God removes all semblance of human boasting. All boasting. I mean, technically speaking, I can't even boast in the cross, except that I know the crucified Christ. I guess I can share that, I can, I can have joy in that, but I can't boast of it because even if, if my life could in some way, in some semblance, uh, resemble Jesus' sufferings, it still wouldn't buy my salvation or anybody else's. If I could go to a cross and be nailed up before you all, it would not do a thing to secure anyone's heavenly salvation. 
and certainly not my own. All I've got, all I've got is faith in God's grace. That's it. And even that was given to me. So what have I really to boast of? Paul says, by grace you have been saved. Have been is present tense. That's continuous action. So really, by grace you are being saved. You're in the process of salvation. And yeah, that implies some degree of sanctification. But I'm in the being saved category. It doesn't mean that I might slip and not be. It just means that I'm. that's where I'm going. That's the process I'm in. But saved, by grace you have been, present tense, ongoing. Saved is perfect tense. Well, what does that mean? The word saved is past action with continuous results. So you have been, you are being saved. That is, there was a starting point for you, for me. That point where I said, I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. I accept Him. He is my Savior. That starting point. That began the process, and now I am in the process of continually being saved, and I will continually be saved, grace upon grace, on into eternity. That grace never ends. That salvation never stops. There will never be a day into eternity where the Lord looks out over us and says, you know, kind of tired of y'all. So this whole salvation thing, I think 13 quadrillion years is enough. No. We are constantly being saved. Salvation is both a done deal and an ongoing certainty, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, can we just agree on something here tonight? That faith is not a religious word. We have made it a religious word. Oh, you're of that faith. Oh, you're a person of faith. It's not a religious word. In the original classical Greek, it was not used as a religious word. The word in the Greek is pistis. P-I-S-T-I-S. Every time you see faith in the New Testament scriptures, that's the word. And there are variations of it for faithfulness, etc. But what it's translated literally in the most ancient texts of the Greek language is very simply trust. Trust. That is, quote, an assured reliance on the character, ability, strength, or truth of someone or something. It's just trust. I'm a person of trust. If you want to call me that, I'm okay with that. I trust Jesus. I just trust Him. I trust He's going to do what He said He's going to do. Why? Because He did everything He said He was going to do before. So it's trust. And I really think, you know, as we've gone through the Scriptures, something the Lord has done with us here and continues to do in me is to strip away anything that stinks of religion. And I know that's funny to say, sitting in a church. But we get so religious and so wrapped up in the righteousness, the reason why we struggle with concepts like grace is because we've got our religious attitudes. It's not faith, it's trust. For by grace you have been saved through trust. Do you trust Him? Do you trust Jesus? See, I do. And that's not some big religious thing. It's just I trust Him. Pure and simple. Jesus Christ is my Savior. And I don't trust in my own self to win the day. That's bad judgment right there. 
Paul said in Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of law since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Just trust Him and it will be just as if I'd never sinned. Trust and obey. By the way, the word for faith, the word that translates trust has the nuance of obedience. If you trust someone, you obey them. If you trust the captain of the ship and he says, pull at the oars, you pull at the oars. If he says, batten down the hatches, you batten down the hatches. Why? Because you trust that he knows what he's doing. So there's obedience that comes with the trust, which reminds me of that favorite old hymn, Trust and Obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. It's one of the earliest hymns I ever learned, and I even remember as a child hearing that. When it comes on now, I am right back to like four years old, singing out a key with my parents just loving it. Faith is trust, pure and simple. For by grace you have been saved through faith, through trust. And that not of yourselves, he says. It is the gift of God. The word gift is doron. D-O-R-O-N. Doron. It is a common word in the Greek, but Paul only uses it once in all of his letters, and that's right here. It's the only time when you see the word gift in other letters of Paul, it's a different order, a different variation. Doron is used right here, and it is literally, note this, it's a gift given to express honor. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. A gift given to express honor. And it can honor both the giver of the gift and the receiver of the gift. See, remember, God is honored in giving grace. And on into eternity, the the angels and the authorities and the principalities are learning of God's grace. They are honoring and praising God as they discover grace through His interactions with us. It's part of the whole program here. It's amazing to think how how much bigger than us it really is. It is about honor and glory and praise to God. And He is praised, He is honored by simply giving the gift. And we are honored to receive the gift. Now, if if you look at verse 8, you see that specific words here. Grace, saved, faith... And then he says, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So the scholars have argued for decades, centuries really, as to whether the gift of God is grace, salvation, or faith. Has he given you the gift of grace? Has he given you the gift of salvation by his grace? Or has he given you the gift of faith that you might believe to receive salvation by his grace? This is what the scholars do with their time. Which one is it? I submit all three. That all three are a gift of God. And that Paul is qualifying all three. Grace is gifted to me because I don't deserve it. And salvation rewards me though I haven't earned it. And even faith honors me. Faith to receive salvation by His grace. And all of it honors God. So the gift, Doron, you could call it a revolving Doron. It's a good way to think about it. It just is the gift that keeps on giving, and even if I'm an idiot, it's a doron for a moron. Another help there to remember. 
so marvelous. By grace, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Why would God do this? Why this marvelous offer of His grace? Let me tell you something. It's why you were created. Grace is why you were made. It's why you are who you are. Look at verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And of course, Paul illuminates here Christ involved in the whole creation process. John chapter 1 verse 2 talks about it. We read this, Colossians 1.16 talks about Jesus' involvement in creation. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2, all of these other verses that refer to the creative work of Jesus Christ at the beginning, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all involved in the creation of all things on earth and in the heavens. And so we are His Workmanship. The word workmanship here is a great word. Some of you know it, right? I'm already getting a thumbs up from Mark. It is poiema. And yes, it is where we get our word poem. Poiema in the Greek. Originally, the ancient Greeks used the word to describe the creative act of a deity. You know how they had all the mythological Greek gods. And so the poiema was something that a Greek god did in creative aspect. If, if Zeus, by their mythology, did some remarkable thing, some creative, beautiful thing, it was a poiema uh, of Zeus, see. Later on, the Greeks began to apply this word poiema to any creative work, poetry, music, art. In fact, it reflects the view, the Greek view, that the arts are divinely inspired. They would think of the poiema, the the beautiful artistic manifestation. Plato even referred to God as ho poion, which is the poet. I like that. God is the poet. And we are his poetry. We are his workmanship. This word poiema, Paul only uses in one other place, and that's in Romans chapter 1 verse 20. Where he says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. That is, tois poiemasin. The poiema, what he has created, what he has worked, what he has brought to being. If you ever, ever hear somebody question their worth or their value... Take them to Ephesians 2.10. You bring them right here and you say, you know, as far as my understanding is, the Bible says we are His poems. If you're feeling worthless, you are the poetry of God. Now, my life sometimes looks more like a limerick than a poem, but, but you are poetry. Your value, your worth is inestimable and not because of you or what you've done or what you've accomplished, but because you were made by Him. The poet made you the poem. You are a reflection, therefore, of that great artistry of God, of of that phenomenal poetry of God. Bring them here. If someone's saying, I'm a loser, I'm no good, I'm worthless, you take them here and you say, funny, it says here we are His workmanship. And then you take them directly over to Psalm 139. And on the way there, ask them this question. Is God a poor craftsman? 
does God create? Does He artistically develop failures? Is He in the business of making junk? Psalm 139, verse 13 says, For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. Now, if wonderful are His works, and we are His workmanship, then you tell me, are we wonderful? Well, we were created to be. Absolutely. By our gracious poet God, Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. And my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. I always read this and I think of my grandmother Irene. I know I've shared this before, but she told me once how she was arguing with her siblings about about how far back she could remember. And her siblings remembered something that happened when he was three, and then she remembered something that happened when she was two, and he remembered something that happened when he was six months. And finally she she said, well, I remember when I was in mom's womb, because God said, hold still, Irene, while I put your eyes in. And verse 16 of Psalm 139 says, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. When God made you, when God created you, He created sheer poetry. Well, I've messed that up. Repent and come back to the poet and trust in the beauty that God has created in you. Sheer poetry. But, but, this is where it gets really, really good. You see, while Jesus was involved in original creation, all things came into being through Him. Nothing was made without Him. All of that. While all of that's true. And while all creation is, I believe, God's workmanship, God's poetry, get this, in Ephesians 2.10, Paul is explicitly talking about new creation. This is new creation. We are His workmanship created how? In Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. New creation. Back in Colossians 3 verse 10, he says, You've put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Created new. Made anew. Ephesians 4.24, which we'll get to later on, not tonight. Ephesians 4.24 says, Put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God and has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. This is so amazing because this is the answer to the person who was created a poem of God but then ended up messed up, words got lost, the paper got torn smudged, wiped out. But you come to Jesus and you are recreated. You are created anew, a brand new self, a new you, a new workmanship created in Christ Jesus now for good works. And though the old self may be battered and bruised and broken by sin, I have been born again. I am now a new creation. 
As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.16, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. We have this daily renewal, this, this constant renewing that's taking place in our spirit man, in our spirit woman, ladies. That God is doing in us and, and through us by the power of Jesus Christ and by His Spirit in us. And we look in the mirror and we don't always see it. And we got the outer, the external. You know, we've got lotions and cover-ups and salves and hair stuff and all manner of things to try and hide the fact that we're decaying. But you know what? Inwardly, we are being renewed. I wish we could see each other that way. To see what God sees in us, that, that the Spirit of the person following after Jesus, while the body may be crumbling, the Spirit is getting brighter and brighter and brighter as we've been remade. In this daily renewal in Christ Jesus, He says we have been newly created for what? For good works. So walk in them. We've been made for good works. Walk in them. You know, the proposition to holiness is so simple. Just do it. Just be holy. Well, I don't know. You have been recreated. Yeah, but you are born again. Yeah, but I don't know. You have been made anew. Walk that way. As, as God has created you. Remember what we talked about in Colossians 2.6. has become a kind of a buzz verse for me over the past few weeks here. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Right, Mike? We were talking about this on Sunday. Walk in Him. I can walk. I can do this good thing. I can do that good thing. Some of you may be like Pippin in The Lord of the Rings. Rick, how often are you going to refer to The Lord of the Rings? I don't know, it's just a great series, so maybe a lot. You remember the scene in the movie, if you saw the movie, where at the Council of Elrond... And they're trying to decide to do what, what to do with the ring. And they realize they've got to take the ring and throw it into the fires of Mount Doom. And if you haven't seen the movie, please go watch it. The spiritual overtones are remarkable. But anyway, they're at this big council and the elves are there and the dwarves are there and the men are there and the hobbits are there. And they, they stand up and they say, this is going to be the fellowship of the ring. And of course, Merry and Pippin, two little hobbits, come running in there. They're, he's not going anywhere without us. And they stand up beside, beside uh, Frodo and they're ready to go, and then Pippin goes, Great! Where are we going? <laughs> and maybe you read something like this, and you say, I've been, I'm God's workmanship. Okay, I've been recreated. I'm trying to wrap my mind around that. In Christ Jesus, okay, yeah, He did that. Four good works. <clears throat> Which God prepared so beforehand so we would walk in them, and maybe like Pippin, you stand there and you say, Great! Where are we going? What does that look like? I don't know where I'm going. You can tell me to walk in these works that God prepared. I don't know how to get there. And Jesus told the boys in John 14, verse 4, You know the way where I'm going. And Pippin, Thomas, he said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said what? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. What does that tell us? It tells us that the track of good works was created beforehand by Jesus. He's the way. Meaning, 
Meaning He blazed the trail. Meaning He cut a swath through the woods. His feet already impacted the soil of the wetlands. Do you know that the fences that go all the way around here, we had to put these fences up in compliance with county ordinance on, on our land. May I rant for a moment? This is not by, this is pure flesh. Don't take in, don't take notes, stop taking notes. This is absolutely flesh, it's not spiritual. Jake wanted to take a group of kids down there to do some camping, maybe back in the woods. We can't. Well, why not? You might impact the wetlands. So we can't walk in the woods, right? The woods that we own, right? Uh, the woods God created, yeah, those woods. Can the deer go back there? Rachel had a brilliant idea this afternoon. She said, just ride the deer. <laughs> All right, so now we're back to spiritual. You can start taking notes again. Seriously, how did Jesus walk? You want to know how to walk in good works that have been prepared? How did Jesus walk? Do that. Give grace. Show forgiveness. Love people. Teach and stand on the truth. Serve selflessly. Trust God. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, Jesus said, who is in heaven. Matthew 5.16 It's not that difficult. Psalm 37 verse 3 Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Now, maybe you're like me and you still need a little more clarification. I mean, I like these things, trust and do good and all that, but I need to be more specific, alright? 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I don't know what good works to do. Well, why don't you start in Genesis and when you come across one, do it. And just keep going. And I might add this caveat and remember that as you're going through the good works of the Scriptures, don't search them so that you might have life. It is these that testify of Jesus. John 5.39 When the church walks like that, when you and I just simply, trustingly walk in the good works, following after Jesus... It's sheer poetry. And that's what we were created for. That's what we were recreated for. Now you might notice Paul uses a little two-word phrase, three-word phrase here, four times in this wonderful chapter, in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, he uses four times. I want you to track this through with me. Down in verse 13, if you just skip ahead for a moment. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So, redeemed. In Christ Jesus, redeemed. And then back in verse 10, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So, in verse 10, recreated. We were redeemed. We were recreated. Go back earlier into the chapter, verse 6. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we were raised up. Redeemed, recreated, raised up. And then finally, that He might, verse 7, 
in the ages to come show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So we were redeemed, recreated, raised up for the riches of His grace and kindness. Wow! And we deserved none of it. And He did all of it. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. That's grace. Plain and simple. Now what's marvelous is after grace comes peace. And by the way, that's how it works. Paul never says peace and grace. He always says grace and peace because grace comes first. If you don't get grace, you don't get peace. If you don't have grace, you're not going to get, understand, experience, or know peace. Not the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Or the peace of Christ, which guards our minds in Christ Jesus. If you want peace, it starts with grace. But then peace soon follows. Verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. In fact, Paul uses several words here to describe us prior to or outside of Jesus. Separate, excluded, strangers, hopeless, godless. So much for peace, huh? But that's where it is. That's where a life is outside of Christ. Separate, excluded, strangers, hopeless, godless, peaceless. But this, this isn't just about godless Gentiles. Watch this. It's not just about the distant Gentile people. Paul is now going to begin to draw this sharp contrast between two people groups. Two people groups, the uncircumcision and the circumcision. The uncircumcision is a... Well, it's a modified, slightly less offensive word than another word. But the word here that you would see translated in the Greek is akrobustia. Akrobustia is a modification of akroposthia, which is the original word that the Jewish Greeks, the Hellenistic Jews, or those speaking Greek, kind of translated this word to be a word that they use for the Gentiles. Want to know what it means? How it translates? Foreskins. It was an insult that the uncircumcision, nice and cleaned up for our Bibles, is the foreskins. That's the Gentiles. And that was a Jewish slang to be used for every non-Jew in the world. There were two kinds of people in the world, according to the, the Jewish people, prior to the coming of Christ, just two kinds of people. There were the Jews and there were the foreskins. There were the circumcised, and there were the non-circumcised. And by the way, the circumcision here is the peritome, which is not as crude a word. It does mean to cut around, but the idea behind peritome is to cut around for the sake of purity. So really you had the purity and the foreskins. That was the designation of the Jews and the Gentiles. And yet Paul notes with almost comical irony here, That circumcision is performed in the flesh by human hands. Think about that. If circumcision is what makes a person pure, how is that possible? How can unclean flesh make flesh clean? 
It doesn't work. How's that possible? We, we just figured out with our, with our little drinking fountains. I probably shouldn't share this because it'll gross everybody out. But, but the, the new little drinking things that we have out here, we're going to switch them out for the old school, old style ones. We decided this today because we realized that the new ones, while you can slide the bottle of water real easily in underneath, that there's a tube that has to go down into the bottle of water, and for the bottle to be taken out and put in, you've got to take the tube out. So someone's getting their hands all over that tube and then sticking it down in the water, and Jim, I ain't drinking tonight. <laughs> how can human hands, how can human flesh make clean? We can't. And yet circumcision is an act of the flesh done by the flesh. So what are you saying, Rick? Well, circumcision was simply a sign all the way back to Abraham, a sign of the promised seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, on down the line, the seed who is Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the promised seed. The seed that was promised all the way back when God was cursing Satan in Genesis 3.15. That your seed will bruise his, her seed. Her seed will crush you on the head. The seed, the promised seed. And so God gave circumcision as a picture of that promise, as a reminder that promise was going to be fulfilled, but not as a sign that that person happens to be more pure than Mr. Foreskin over here. But it's an age-old division. A very sharp division. Jew versus Gentile. Hebrew versus versus heathen. Patriarch versus pagan. The Jewish people, chosen of God, and everybody else. Now, understand something before I go any further. The Jewish people were, and I believe still are, absolutely special and absolutely unique, chosen of God. That has not changed. In fact, the Bible tells us, Psalm 147, verse 20, He has not dealt thus with any nation, and as for His ordinances, no other nation has known them. Praise the Lord! He dealt with the Jewish people, with that nation, the nation of Israel, uniquely, distinctly. Romans chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. The oracles, the prophecies. The prophetic word of the coming Mashiach. That Jesus would fulfill. Romans 9 verse 4. Paul refers to the Israelites to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, whose overall God blessed forever. Amen. What advantage does the Jewish person have? Every advantage. They were first ones in. Chosen of God and still... In God's plan. And still, God is working out something remarkable. So that while Paul is apostle to the Gentiles, what he's doing here is gently reminding them, us, of their, our, former position. That there was a time... When there was either Jew or Gentile, there were either those who were included and those who were excluded, those who were in and those who were separate, those who were known and those who were strangers. 
Those who were hopeful and those who were hopeless. Those who had God and those who were godless. That was the division. And it was that way for 4,000 years of civilization. Until Jesus came. And when I read this, in verse 12, remember you were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world? (laughs) Add to that far off, which you will say in a minute, not far out, but far off. And with the exception of death, what Paul has just described here, is the greatest fear of humanity. What? Utter aloneness. Separation. To be an outsider and an outcast. To not belong to anyone or anywhere. Aside from dying, that terrifies us. And Paul says, outside of God, apart from Christ, that was you. And I think there is some wisdom in us remembering where we were before Jesus. Where we would be without Him. Verse 13, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Those who were far off, and they've been talked about before, Acts chapter 2, verse 39, Peter said, For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. As many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. And Peter didn't even know in that moment he was talking about Gentiles. He just thought perhaps he was talking about the diaspora. The Jews who weren't in the land, scattered throughout the world. Remember, Peter had to come to grips with the reality that Christ was for all people, not just for the Jews. For people who were far off. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 15, in a remarkable prophecy of the millennium, Zechariah said, those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. Implication, Gentiles will be a part of building the millennial temple along with the one Zechariah calls the branch. Jesus Himself will build the temple and so will those who are far off. They will come and help build the temple of the Lord. But listen, get this. In spite of all of that exclusion and strangeness and hopelessness and godlessness, by the blood of Christ we are drawn near. It's the blood, it's the blood, it is the blood that draws us near. Remarkable. The blood it has this power of attraction, if you will. And the blood of Christ is no respecter of any other blood types. All blood types are drawn near by the blood of Jesus. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 says, They sang a new song. They is the redeemed. In fact, a little hint for you, in Revelation chapter 5, you are in heaven. And in Revelation 5, when you're in heaven, you're listening to a song that is sung by the redeemed. Guess who the redeemed are in heaven singing the song that John writes down? You. Me. It is prophetic of us in heaven singing the song of the redeemed. This is our song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The blood draws all types. 
And note again that list. It is all inclusive. Tribe, tongue, people, and nation. It is the blood that draws us near. We were so far off. So far off. But the blood drew us in. Drew us near. Okay, near to what? Good question. Near to the cross, Jesus Keep me near the cross. They're a precious fountain. And I forget the rest of the words. But you know what I'm singing. (laughs) Jesus, keep me near the cross. Is that it? Uh, Possibly. Is it the temple? We're far off. They're going to build the temple of the Lord. So, So perhaps he's talking about the blood draws us near to the temple. And of course there's the blood sacrifice in the temple courts. Right, so that the Jewish people could come near to the presence of God. Is, is that what this is talking about? Is it the Christ? That the blood of Christ draws us near to Christ? Oh, get this. All of those are implicit. That is, all of those would apply. That the, Yes, the, the blood draws us to the cross, draws us to the temple, draws us to the presence of God, draws us to Jesus. But I believe that he's talking about the far off, that is Gentiles, being brought near to Israel. Israel. And this is so important to grasp. Because this whole section, as peace is about to be proclaimed, what what Paul is saying is suddenly we Gentiles are included. Suddenly we're part of the plan. We are committed to the commonwealth. We are grafted in. By the blood of Jesus. Romans eleven seventeen. If some of the branches, that is Israel, were broken off, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them. And I still think wild olive clothing would be a great, really cool, subtle clothing line for Christians. And you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them, that is with the branches, of the rich root of the olive tree... Do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember it's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. And the root is Christ. The root of the olive tree is Jesus. The branches are Israel. The wild olives are the Gentiles now grafted in, brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. No more separate, excluded, hopeless, godless strangers. We now have been brought near. We're part of the deal. Now the reason why I point this out, and you've got to understand this in Ephesians chapter 2, is because what Paul is doing is laying in a case for the remarkably unified ascendancy of the church, which is Jew and Gentile unified. Jew and Gentile together. Look at verse 14. For He Himself is our peace. Now, stop right there. He is our peace. Talking again about Jesus, of course. This is not the personal peace of God. When He says, He is our peace, He's not talking about how you feel when at the end of a bad day you settle into some prayer. That's legitimate peace. But that is the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. That's the peace of God. When all hell is breaking loose in your life, you're able to go, it's cool. It's alright. I trust Him. I know He's got it. Peace of God surpasses understanding, but that's not this peace. He is our peace. This is the unifying peace of Christ over His body, 
He himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. This is what Paul was talking about in Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you are indeed called as one body. The one body needs the peace of Christ. The church needs the peace of Christ. It is He is our peace. He is what calls us, who calls us to function peaceably one with another. This is a peace, a peace for a people that should otherwise be in conflict. We should be at each other's throats, if not for the peace of Christ. Sometimes churches are. Sometimes people are. But what Paul is describing here is beyond all race, class, gender, or genealogy, a peace that unifies a people. And that peace is Jesus Himself. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying that so long as our eyes are on Jesus, there is peace in the body of Christ in the church. If our eyes are on Jesus, we are at peace. If we take our eyes off Jesus, peace goes away. Ever experienced that? I think you all know what I'm talking about. In fact, we can ask the question, and and some non-believers ask it. They say, why all the conflict? Why all the disparate denominations and cliques and clans? Why when you look at the church, you see all these divisions? Why are there skirmishes within fellowships? Why are there conflicts between believers of Christ? Why do Christian marriages divide? In the most fundamental of all human relationships, Adam and Eve were created for each other. And so marriage is that most fundamental relationship. And we can't even keep that one together. Why? It happens when we take our eyes off Jesus. That's always the issue. It's always the problem. Clashes break out. Not just in marriage, but in relationships. In churches, between people. Clashes break out when when self-importance overrules loving my neighbor as myself. Or when my personal rights outshine compassion for another. The clashes break out when we, listen, when we give dominion to things that ought to be squarely under His feet, as we talked about on Sunday. He has all dominion. God has given all dominion to the head over the body and everything is under His feet, which means everything should be under our feet, which means our clashes and contentions and conflicts should go away if our eyes are on the head. If we are watching Jesus and focused on Him. But when we take our eyes off Christ in our relationships, our marriages, our families, our churches, our fellowships, conflicts arise. And the single greatest prescription for peace in this fellowship, my friends, is that we all keep our eyes on Jesus. We love each other the way Jesus loved us. We look to Him for the answers. We follow His good works, those paths of good works we were talking about before. We do what He did. Well, it doesn't feel right sometimes to do what He did. You think the cross felt right on His shoulders as He walked to Calvary? Do you think it felt right the week prior to His death when He was being run through the coals by, the, by all the Pharisees challenging Him at every turn? Do you think it felt right when people 
turned their backs on him and walked away because his teaching was too hard? We're not talking about how it feels. We're talking about who Jesus is. And peace comes. Real peace. Felt peace, known peace, experienced peace comes when I am looking at Jesus. You know, I mean, let's get real with this. When I look at Jesus, He is beautiful. He is perfect. He is awesome. He is amazing. And and when I'm worshiping and looking at Him, I really don't have time to look at the ugliness on other people or on myself. I'm just struck by Him. How often have we said in here, what will it be like when we get to heaven, we think of people that we miss, or or maybe people we would like to meet and talk to, but you know, when we get to heaven, we're not going to care who's there but Him. Everybody's going to be looking at Him. Everybody's going to be enamored of Him. And it won't be, you'll be standing right next to George Washington. And you're not going to care. You won't even notice if His teeth are wooden. You won't pay attention. To to those amazing people who happen to be right next to you, right around you, you're not even going to see them. And if you do notice them, you're just going to go, Jesus. Jesus. And that is so key to the peace in our lives. Walk as He walks. Fix our eyes on Him. And again, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, God put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, to the fullness of Him who fills all in all. For He Himself is our peace. Again, who made both groups into one. That is Jew and Gentile. And broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. June 12th, 1987. Some of you remember this. Others are like, wow, I was just barely alive. June 12th, 1987 at the Brandenburg Gate, Ronald Reagan gave a famous speech. And at the end of the speech, he ad-libbed. This was not written down when Ronald Reagan stood up, went off notes, freaked out his staff, and shouted, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And that sentence sent shockwaves. And you know what happened. In short order, the Berlin Wall came down. And that division, that dividing wall, was history. The wall came down, the Cold War was over, (laughs) for the time being. But here we are in the world getting a little chilly again, at least where Russia is concerned. Lines... Once again are being drawn. Walls are being built. I'm not even saying they shouldn't be. But a greater wall than the Berlin Wall came down at the cross. And few people in the moment realized it. Do you recognize the dividing wall was ripped asunder along with the veil in the temple? The dividing wall. I think Paul had a particular wall in mind. An actual wall physical, visible wall in the temple complex. It was a wall about three feet high, we've talked about it before, that separated the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the courts, from the women's court and then on into the temple courts. And there were signs at intervals all around this wall. Josephus tells us those signs were in Greek and in Latin and they warned Gentiles not to go beyond that three-foot wall under pain of death. The dividing wall. Why would Paul, out of nowhere, in in 
dealing with this division between Jew and Gentile and how Jesus brought us together in this remarkable new thing, why would he be thinking of that particular dividing wall? I would suggest to you, because it's the reason for his arrest, that wall is why he's sitting in prison in Rome writing this letter. What happened? Well, do you remember the story? It's toward the end of Acts, Acts 27. Paul was arrested under the false claim. The people in Jerusalem, there in the temple courts, went nuts against him because someone started a false rumor that he had illegally brought a Gentile, his pal Trophimus, across that wall and into the courts where a Gentile was not allowed to go. In Acts 21, sorry, it's Acts chapter 21, verse 27 through 29, the Jews claimed that he breached the dividing wall. And once that word got out and the mob took hold of it, they were going to tear Paul limb from limb. The Romans had to step in and pull him out of the mob. And he would have been set free from that, but you know the story. He appealed to Caesar, so to Caesar he must go. But that was what happened in Jerusalem among his own people that sent him to prison in Rome. And now he sits in that rented house, in chains, dictating this letter to be sent off to Ephesus. And he says, He is our peace who broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Interesting, Paul called himself, you'll see it actually, chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Now that can be translated one of two ways. I'm a prisoner for your sake, or I'm a prisoner because of you. Because of the whole Trophimus thing. Now I'm a prisoner. Interesting. Paul didn't have to breach the wall because Jesus already had. Jesus already tore down the wall. The Jewish church had to catch up and understand that. But it was so much of Paul's ministry to say, Hey, there's one new man now. It's not Jew and Gentile anymore. It's just one new man. In verse 15, he says, He did this, Jesus did this, broke down the peace. He did it by abolishing in His flesh the enmity. Watch this. Which is the law of commandments. Contained in ordinances. So that in Himself, He might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both to one body, to God, through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. No longer Jew versus Gentile. That enmity is over. The word enmity is ekphra. And ekphra in the Greek means hatred. The long-standing Jew-Gentile, Gentile-Jew hatred. Now, it's interesting. Why in the world would he say the law is what caused the hatred? How is the perfect law of God uh, resulting that the ordinances cause this, this enmity? Think about it. What does the law do? It illuminates my personal guilt and shame. And when I'm ashamed, when I'm guilty, I'm going to bite at you. I'm going to keep people at arm's length. I will stir up conflict just so it takes the focus off of me. When I'm the guilty one, what is the very first thing that Adam said when he was 
you know, caught by God. The woman made me do it. He had one law, and the one law made him ashamed, and it was her. And what did Eve do? It was the serpent. Blame, you know, and, and the law does that. We see the law. We violate the law and then we look for someone else to blame to get the heat off of us. But the law also does something else. It ignites judgment or envy by comparison of others. Think of the Ten Commandments. Okay, alright, I lied. I haven't stolen. I didn't commit adultery. I didn't murder anybody like that guy. And you see what the law does? Here are all the rules. Here are all the standards. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing better than Doug Oddie's doing, I can tell you that. <laughs> I only said that because Doug's right there in my line of sight. Sorry. And so comparison, and, and he's more righteous, and she's more righteous, and that guy's more holy than I am, or I'm more holy than, than she is, and all those games, my friends, it's law, it's legalism, it's religion, and God hates it. Because it's just not about grace. Remember what comes first. Grace and then peace. Not religion and then peace. Not law and then peace. Hatred. The hatred, the enmity. This, this enmity, same, same word, the Hebrew equivalent is used in Ezekiel 35 where, where the prophet describes the bitter lifelong hatred of the Edomites and Ishmaelites, that is the Arabs, against the Jews. Listen to how it's described. Ezekiel 35, verse 5, because you have had an everlasting enmity and have delivered the sons of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of the punishment of the end. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will give you over to bloodshed, and bloodshed will pursue you, since you have not hated bloodshed. Therefore, bloodshed will pursue you. Why is the Middle East so messed up today? That's why. Because there has been an everlasting enmity between Arabs and Jews. And you know what's remarkable is they're cousins. The Edomites from Edom, Esau, Jacob and Esau, brothers. The Ishmaelites from Ishmael, half-brother to Isaac. And that's the lineage that draws all the way back. So you've got Ishmael who is jealous of Isaac and you've got Esau who's jealous of Jacob. And these two things together have spawned an everlasting enmity that continues to boil in the Middle East to this very day. And God says to the Arab, to the Ishmaelite, to the Edomite, He says, hey, I will give you over to bloodshed. And bloodshed will pursue you. Here's the good news for any Arab. The shed blood of Christ pursues you. And so you have a choice. You can go bloodshed and be given over to it or you can be given over to the shed blood of Jesus Christ that even an Arab and a Jew might come together and fully realize the peace of Christ two separate hateful people toward each other now brought together by the peace of Christ as one new man President Trump is not going to bring the art of the deal to the Middle East It's not going to work. No, it's only the blood of the deal of Jesus 
that can and will do that. Verse 17, And He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. He's quoting Isaiah 57 verse 19, which is peace, peace to Him who is far, who is far and to Him who is near, says the Lord. And I will heal him. I love how Paul terms this by the Holy Spirit. Again in verse 17, He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Peace to the distant Gentile, stranger to the covenants, and peace to those who were right in the middle of the covenants, Israel. Peace to both. In quoting this, going all the way back to Isaiah, 750 years before Christ, in quoting this, Paul reveals God's intentions both for Israel and the Gentile. That all along, it was God's plan to make the two into one new man. F.F. Bruce puts it this way, he says, Whereas Jews formerly tended to speak of the division of humanity into Jews and Gentiles, Paul makes a new threefold classification into Jews, Greeks, and the church. And until 2,000 years ago, there were just two kinds of people in this world, Jews and Gentiles. Now there are Jews, Gentiles, and there is the church. He says the church embraces former Jews and former Gentiles. No wonder, he says, no wonder the ancient Christians spoke of themselves, and I like this, as the third race. The third race. In fact, Clement of Alexandria, I had to look that up, the third race, Clement of Alexandria in the 2nd century said the following, we who worship God in a new way as the third race are Christians. I like that. But rather than just the third race, I would say the new race, or perhaps the new breed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And in Christ, everyone of this new breed has, Paul says, access to God the Father through the Holy Spirit. So this is another avenue of the Spirit. We've talked a lot about the Spirit, especially through the writings of Paul and and beginning with Acts, going into the New Testament. The Holy Spirit is everywhere. And how He empowers us beyond ourselves to a, a boldness to witness how He engages us in ministry one with another in the body through through gifts and through effects and through ministries. But here's another one. We gain access to the Father through the Spirit. Paul says pray in the Spirit. Well, what does that mean? Well, I I believe he's talking about praying in the Spirit. Uh, I I believe he's talking about specific, even, even the use of prayer languages. But guess what? When you pray to God, you're praying in the Spirit. Because you cannot access the Father unless you are praying through the Holy Spirit. So even your just average, normal, everyday prayers, you are praying in the Spirit. Guess what? You're a Pentecostal and you didn't even know it. (laughs) We have access to God? No Jewish person had access to God. You had to go through the priest. You had to bring your sacrifices. No Gentile had access to God. You had to go through your pagan priests or priestess. You had to commit vile acts. You had to sacrifice children to try and appease the angry gods. Nobody had access to God. The third race. 
We all, Jew and Gentile alike, have access to God through one Spirit. This is is an ongoing theme of Paul. The access of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. And my friends, listen, it is absolutely vital. Paul will show us this going further into the letter. The Spirit is vital to the unity of the church. Where the Spirit is not welcome, the church will not remain unified. I've seen more churches split, and oftentimes because they have no sense of the Spirit among them. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One body, one Spirit, that Spirit giving us access to God the Father. Philippians 1.27, Paul says, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, listen, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, that is with Israel, the holy ones, the saints refers to them, and are of God's household. So we've seen grace, which always comes before peace, and now a place. You have a place. You have a belonging. You are of God's household. Whereas perhaps before you felt like the prodigal who was saying, maybe I can just go come home and be a servant. You know, they eat better than I'm eating here with the pigs. Maybe that, that's what I get. You know, I can serve in that. No, 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 no. You are of God's household now. We are insiders. Grace gives me place. You could say, uh, I have peace with a whole new lease. I have a place. God's household. Now, perhaps Paul's inspiration of the dividing wall that's now broken down between Jew and Gentile Perhaps that's what led him to envision what he begins to describe now. And it is a new household of God. Watch this. Verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now don't close your Bible just yet. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth of the local church. He said, we are God's fellow workers and you are God's field, God's building. He says in 1 Corinthians 3.11, For no one can lay, no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Interesting, here he says, verse 20, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Well, there he said the foundation was Jesus. Now here he says the foundation is the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Understand this. A couple of things about the apostles and the prophets. First of all, when he says the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, that can also be translated the foundation laid by the apostles and the prophets, which is Jesus. Right? I mean, that's what Paul told the church of Corinth. I laid the foundation, which is Jesus Christ. There's no other foundation. 
So it can be translated that. The other thing I want you to note here is that Paul is beginning to focus more immediately on the prophets. What do you mean? Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, when he says that, I don't believe he's talking about the prophets of Hebrew Scripture. I think he's talking about the prophets of the early church. Well, why would you say that? Look over at chapter 3, uh, verse 5. Paul's talking about the mystery of Christ, which in other generations has not been made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Has now been made known. He's talking about present day apostles and prophets. He's talking about those who right then, there in the first century, as the church is exploding, as the Spirit has been poured out, he's talking about apostles and prophets in the church. Now if you want to think, yeah, but what about the old school prophets who prophesied of Jesus? Okay, I'm fine with that. You can think that. That's that's good. But it's just interesting to note that these apostles and prophets are the ones laying this foundation for the church, and that foundation is Christ, literally Christ Jesus himself being, and he uses the word here, the corner. That is the capstone. The word is literally the chief corner. I'm not going to try and pronounce it because it's a funky word, but he is literally the keystone. If you take Christ out of the foundation, the entire thing falls. He is what holds everything together. He's what holds all of this up. And this is what I mean when I say, if our eyes are not fixed on Jesus, we will crumble. If we are not focused on Jesus as Lord over us all, as the one who has dominion, we will find ourselves in conflict. We will find crisis after crisis after crisis unless we return to Jesus and look at and consider Jesus. And by the way, I believe the single reason for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in this fellowship for 13 years has been the presence of and the focus on Jesus Christ. And I am absolutely convinced so long as we keep our hearts, our minds, and our even our teaching focused on Jesus, that we will... Avoid conflicts. We may have skirmishes here and there. But hopefully by wise counsel, a brother or sister will come along and say, hey, let's let's take this one to Jesus. Let's pray to Jesus about this. Because when you pray in the name of Jesus, it's really hard to be in conflict. By the way, this concept of the cornerstone and, and us being fitted together as a temple, Paul's not the only one who said this. The Holy Spirit inspired Peter to say the same thing. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, Coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's amazing. The picture of this organic temple made of living stones built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. Now, I've been processing this whole idea, this picture that that Paul paints here, that, that Peter paints over in his letter. We're of God's household, and then he starts to describe this temple, this house of God, this place for us all. And at first I was thinking, I know what Paul's doing. He, he is, he's grabbed on here. He's glommed on to Zachariah's then 500-year-old prophecy. 
Listen to it. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 13. Yes, it is He who will build the temple of the Lord. And He will bear the honor and sit and rule on His throne. And He will be a priest on His throne. And the council of peace... Well, that's what Paul's talking about here, right? Peace. The council of peace will be between the two offices. That is the office of priest and the office of king. There will be perfect peace because Jesus is perfect and will be both king and priest. And I'm thinking, that's, that's where Paul's going. That's what he's talking about here. And then he even says, Zechariah 6.15, that those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. And I was really excited to share that with you tonight and say, oh man, Paul is just pinging off of Zechariah. And I got here this morning and I started reading it. Nope. No, because Zechariah is describing the millennial temple, which is also described by Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48, describes in amazing detail the actual millennial temple that will be built on the Temple Mount with actual stones as an actual place of worship, residence for the Prince Messiah, Jesus Christ, in the millennial kingdom. And you can read and study those things, but this is not that temple. Because the temple that Paul describes here is, as I said, organic. That is, it is made up of us. It is built up by us. Paul is talking about something far greater than the millennial temple here. He's given us a picture, I believe, of the temple in New Jerusalem. Revelation 21, verse 22 I saw no temple in it, New Jerusalem. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And I can show you this another time. Just take my word for it tonight. Your zip code in the new heavens, new earth, is New Jerusalem. There are hints and markings all over New Jerusalem, Revelation 21 and 22, to indicate that the church, the third race, the new breed, the Jew, the Gentile no longer, but now just the people, the saints of God, will reside in New Jerusalem where the temple is the Father and the Lamb. It's beautiful. And what I believe Paul is saying here at the end of this chapter is we are being built up to that end. Beyond the tribulation temple, beyond the thousand year millennial temple, onto the new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, that's the temple that we are a picture in type of. Grace and peace and a place to you in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.